This episode is titled, The Future. Big topic, right? But the concept of this episode was inspired by a recent focus group participant, and you know who you are. She said, if we really want to get people's attention on critical issues, we have to put them on the main stage. They can't be in conference room F because the only people that will go are those that already care about those topics, and they're not likely to be the ones that need to hear it the most. So here we are on the main stage with an important episode on two topics that matter most to our future. Are you wondering what that means or what our topics are? Don't take it from me. If you're the brand that is authentically working for social justice and is sustainable and working on climate change, people are going to see that and you are going to win. The voice you just heard was from Sam Aquilano, founder of Design Museum Everywhere. This is our final, but most important episode of the season, and it consists of two chapters. First, we'll dive into topics around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion with Sam, with tangible advice as to where to start when it comes to making meaningful change in our organizations, our industry, and our world. And in chapter two, we'll hear from my coworker and editor-in-chief of our sister brand, Metropolis, Avi with the most up-to-date information around the industry's biggest sustainability initiatives. So with that, welcome to season two of Design Nerds Anonymous, the podcast that sparks curiosity at the intersection of business and design. I'm your host, Amanda Schneider, founder and president at ThinkLab, the research division of Sandow Design Group and sister company to media brands you know and love like Interior Design, Metropolis, Lux, and more. At ThinkLab, our passion is sharing inspiration for your business, fuel for your design process, and connection with people and ideas for positive disruption. So thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. So let's dive in to chapter one, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Meet Sam. My name's Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere which is a nonprofit design museum that is everywhere. We don't have our own building. We are a nomadic slash virtual museum. We figure design is everywhere, so the museum should be everywhere as well. I started the design museum about 12 years ago, back in the previous recession, back in 2009, and I've had the full entrepreneurial journey of starting a nonprofit from scratch. My background's in design. I was a product designer at Bose Corporation for most of my career, designing consumer electronics, and then got into teaching, which I'm, I'm always about learning and constantly reading. And so teaching was such a great fit. But when it came to design, I was so, I guess I had this chip on my shoulder that we were designing for all these people who didn't really know what design was. <laughs> so Design Museum was started as my way to kind of make people more aware of what design is. For visual purposes, since this is a podcast, I want to give you a visual of Sam, but in his words. I am a white, cisgendered, straight male. So <laughs> if you look at the design world, there's a lot of people that look like me, too many people that look like me. And that's a problem because the world doesn't look like me. And we're designing for everyone. Therefore, uh, we need people who don't look like me and have different perspectives 
than me involved in design. And I don't know, my journey around this work. And so it's really important to act in the public interest and, you know, be on top of these things. And so, gosh, it was from the beginning of Design Museum, really thinking about fairness and how do we make design accessible. Now that word accessible has changed over time and my journey has has changed. At the museum, we're constantly trying to figure out how can design make impact? And that's where design museum should be. And we said, hey, this is a problem. It's been a problem for centuries. And here we are doing other work around design in healthcare and design in the workplace. Yes, impactful, but isn't this the most impactful? And so we started thinking, what could we do as a museum to kind of move the needle, make an impact? We came up with this idea for an exhibition, which ended up being called We Design, which is our now our main exhibition that we tour, and it's all accessible on our website. It features women, non-binary, gendered, people of color, people of all different backgrounds working in design, and it talks about their careers and their stories within the framework of all the different kinds of careers you can go into with a creative you know, outlook in education. So it's kind of a twofer, right? You get to see all these amazing careers that you can go into in design, not just product design, architecture, interior design. There's so many. And then you're seeing these stories of people, again, who don't look like me, who work in design. And it's impactful. And interestingly enough, in the first five minutes of opening the exhibit, here's what happened. I think back to the opening reception for that show, I had three young black men come up to me. We hadn't even opened. (laughs) It was just the exhibition was on view at a a place called the Roxbury Innovation Center. And I was just kind of, you know, tooling around, sprucing. And these three black teenagers came up to me, you know, asking me what it was. And I was like, well, let me show you. It's, It's an exhibition. It's about different careers you can go into in design. And they're like, what's design? And I was like, well... Your sneakers are designed, your clothes are designed, this building was designed, and their eyes were just so big, right? They just, they had never even thought that you could have a career, or let's just get down to nuts and bolts, that you could make money with your creativity. In my, like, big moment, again, this was, like, within five minutes of of opening, we had this wall of different cards with different design careers that you could take that had, like, resources and inspiration. They were just like, oh, you can be an apparel designer. Oh, you could be an architect. They had never seen a black designer, let alone know, like I said, that you could do design. So that was our first like major project into this journey. And I'm very proud of it. I mean, we've made a lot of mistakes in that project and and corrected them and, and grown. But to me, that was the kind of impetus around like seeing a problem in our society that I was frankly blind to for the first, you know, 30 years of my life, but now very much eyes open. I love Sam's humility to get curious, get started, recognize his own hidden biases. Now, you may not be ready to tackle a museum exhibit about diversity. It's not likely the business that you're in, but there are many ways to get started. Here's Sam's advice to anyone who also wants to try, but doesn't know where to start. Number one, seek information and perspective. This is a journey for everyone and every journey has a start. So that's actually my first bit of advice is learning and doing the work as you often hear. And what does that mean? That means reading, 
That means seeking out and doing trainings, listening to podcasts, following Black people on social media, and just being aware of what's going on and, and the language and, and sort of knowing what's happening is absolutely essential. The second piece of advice, recognize that this project will never be complete. And by the way, I'm someone who loves projects and loves to complete projects. This is a forever project. This project, for everyone listening to this podcast right now, this project does not end in your lifetime, right? This wasn't a project that I could be like, check, done. Also, this wasn't, again, thinking about my upbringing as a, as a white man, it's a lot about winning, being right, you know, and winning arguments. And I had to come to learn that, like, this is not a, something I'm going to win. Like, and it's a weird position to be in because white people, particularly white people in leadership positions, have all the power. But I'm sorry, folks, you have all the power, but you're not going to be the hero, right? And you have to come to terms with that immediately, okay? Because that opens you up to be more vulnerable and open to change. So that's all, I think, around learning and taking in the information. I, I have done, I don't even know how many, implicit bias trainings, hiring trainings, um, and there's you know a bunch of resources that we could share around learning. But I think getting the information is key. Committing to making change, and actually, by the way, this is going to be very uncomfortable for you. Be prepared that this change is different. It's going to hurt. And his third piece of advice is to try and learn from your mistakes. Sam humbly and vulnerably shares some missteps in his own journey that we can all learn from. I mean, I can give you some examples. Well, I'll start with WeDesign. So we started that project as a predominantly white team. I mean, a full, a, not predominantly white, all white. <laughs> the whole team was white and we had our, you know, our hearts were in the right places. But immediately we said like, we're not the experts on this. And so, what we did was develop what we called a content advisory committee. So it was people of color across the spectrum, all different kind of design disciplines. I think we're around 50 people that basically were advising us on this project. And in fact, our initial title for this exhibition was Inspiring Careers. What a great title. Who? What's wrong with that title? There could be nothing wrong with those two words. Well, our advisor said, listen, these BIPOC designers don't exist to inspire you, right? Their stories might be inspiring, but that's not the point. And I was like, wow, I never in a million years thought the word inspiring could be bad. And it wasn't, bad's the wrong word. You know, it just wasn't the right tone that we were trying to set up. So anyway, we together changed the name. And again, that's just one lesson of like me as a leader, I, I could call the exhibition whenever I want, right? I have all the power. And to open it up and say, you know what? I don't know. Let's work together and like figure out a good name. Another thing we realized in that work, again, we're all white team was we had to recruit people that didn't look like us. And that involved completely changing our hiring policy and practice. And that's something that any leader listening to this podcast right now can change. Like you have the power to change it. So what did we do? A couple of things. We have full salary transparency. So everyone on staff knows what everyone else makes. And all salaries are set based on industry data, okay? Now, there's a lot of bias and problems with industry data, so sometimes you have to work, you know, infuse equity into it. But I send that uh, document that has all of our salaries, the salary bands, I send that with our offer letter to every prospective employee that we're trying to hire. 
So they see it right from the beginning and they know like where they are. When you don't have that transparency, people make assumptions. And they were like, okay, this is someone that is committed to like sharing resources, is being open about it and willing to do it. Another key thing is we have no referrals. So people constantly email me and they're like, I see the job. Hey, we worked together for years and I know I could do this and knock it out of the park. Like they don't say this, but like basically trying to get the inside track. We used to hire that way. I mean, I think everyone did or does. We don't do that anymore at all. I have my language and I say, listen, thanks for reaching out and for your interests. We have an equitable hiring policy. So you're gonna need to apply just like everyone else and you will be evaluated just like everyone else. I'm not the only person who evaluates the candidates. So already we're kind of trying to spread out that implicit bias. We have set criteria for the job that uh, people need to meet and they're scored on those criteria. We also have a criteria called life experience. And if you have, if you're a white person who's already really represented on the design museum team, your score in that category is not gonna be high. We already have that perspective. If you have a different perspective, whether it's different background, different race, gender, you're gonna get a higher score there because we don't have that, those characteristics on our team and we want them, right? So it's, it's a way to kind of weigh that importance of having uh, a diverse team. And then we score everyone very as, as objectively as you possibly can. But in terms of really changing our hiring practices, that's been the last year. And the results speak for themselves. I mean, anyone can go on our website and see our team. And I, I now I get this, <laughs> thankfully say, formerly predominantly white organization. You know, it's a different outlook now, which I'm very proud of. Now, we're a museum, a little bit different. What does it look like for an architecture firm or an interior design firm? Maybe there's a project you can do or something you can visibly say, listen, we are going to focus our vendor you know, spending on, we do need to make this impact. I'm going to pause here for a second. If you haven't done so, I invite you while you're listening to do a small experiment. Open your own website, go to your team page. And what do you see? You got to put some signals out there that you are doing this work authentically so that people can see it and people can see, okay, this is an organization where if I work for them, I'm going to be welcomed. I'm going to have a call. Listen, I hear a lot of times firms hire a person of color, one, and that person stays for three to six months and they leave. And they're like, what happened? Why did I lose this person that I like so purposefully like recruited? And it turns out your culture is not really set up to really provide the support that a person of color requires and that they need. That's understandably. And it, that gets, gets to how decisions are made within your organization. My key advice is to figure out a way that where you can visibly, authentically send some signals out there that you're growing your community and your community will come. Again, it's it's the small, it can be the smallest things. One thing that, that I did, God, it, it was so silly and easy. Everyone listening, if you're a leader, you have the power to do these things. So one of our, he's a former volunteer, a black man. He started this campaign to make Juneteenth a national holiday, like, you know, federal holiday. What an amazing moment in our history that should certainly be celebrated by everyone. And, you know, he was basically getting corporations to sign on and, and do this and having, you know, some success. 
and I was sitting there and I like pulled up our holiday calendar and I'm like, it's nothing to me to add another holiday. Nothing. I can do it with, you know, you used to say with a stroke of a pen, with a typing of a few keys. What I did was I, I joined onto that. I wrote up a little blog post and the reason why we were doing it. I ended up getting press, which there you go, shows you that. And I was like, can you go talk to Quentin and the team that's actually doing this? But, you know, I shared why, why we're doing it. So it doesn't always have to be like broad, huge things. There's the, you know, small things that have a big impact, like a holiday or giving people the time they need to go vote. You know, it's all those things that I think about almost in terms of universal design, right? When you like design something for someone that might have, you know, an impairment that you end up designing something that works well for everyone. Well, if you design your organization to work well and to support by POC folks who who do, we do need to over-index and create cultures for them. Your entire team is going to benefit because you're going to have this more open, transparent, uh, sharing culture. And the business impacts are huge for that, from re retaining folks, from recruiting. It's huge. It's going to be different for everyone. But I don't think you can say, I'm going to post my job on different places and just hope, you know, that people of color are going to like jump in because they are reading your work. They are going on your website. I know folks are looking at our board of directors and seeing that our board chair is a black man and our vice chair is a woman of color. Like all these things matter and they all add up to the work. It's a ton of work and it's all extra effort, but I don't like what else, <laughs> what else should I be using my power on this? This is it. This is the project, the forever project. I love the idea of what else can I use my power on? And, and I think you're using it here. I think this is really phenomenal. And, and I want to go back to something you said about authenticity and really doing the work and doing the hard work. But I think what's interesting about your model is there's an ROI to it. Like you're running a successful thing. And I think that some are still thinking of these efforts as, as exactly that, as effort. Like this is something I have to do or I should be doing, or there's pressure to look like I'm doing, you know, back to the authenticity thing. But talk to us about the ROI, like talk to the business people in the room about sure. the financial rewards to your business. Actually, let's start talking about risk first, because that's the opposite <laughs> of ROI. And if you're not doing this, you are at risk. Someone in your organization is going to tweet something, say something, and it's going to reflect back on your organization. Or you're going to hire a person of color. They are going to experience a negative culture that's not sharing, that's not open. They're going to go on Glassdoor. They're going to go on LinkedIn. To me, the risks are so high. Overcoming something like that as an organization, especially of my size, I mean, sometimes if a large organization has a lot of resources, they could recover from something like that. But to me, again, like you said, this is not why I did this, but I think about it as a giant insurance policy of de-risking the organization. If you have the right kind of mix of activities and openness, these things are going to take on some momentum. If you're an architecture firm, can you change how you, with vendors, so that you're prioritizing Black-owned businesses? Do things that support the community. Talk about them with your team. Make your team part of the decision-making around them so that they feel ownership to it. And I promise you're going to see the rewards that come with it, if it's done authentically. If you're doing it to check the box and to, you know, the 
the murder trial just ended, George Floyd's murder, and there's a lot of news around it, and you're feeling like, oh, I better do something. That's just not, it's, it's so easy to see the inauthenticity. It is like a red blinking siren. <laughs> Harder to, to do the authentic piece, but the rewards are huge. And honestly, I think let's look at it from the business perspective. You're going to have to. The brands that are going to win are the brand authentically working for social justice and is sustainable and working on climate change. People are going to see that and you are going to win. I mean, it's just the market is going there. It's not just me being like, woo woo. <laughs> like you can literally see the data of where people are, what people are caring about. And it crosses, it's starting to cross the aisle from a political standpoint, from, you know, certainly from a climate change standpoint, hopefully from a racial equity standpoint, it's happening. My advice, go all in, figure out the project, learn, commit to this, figure out what it means to you and your team, have open conversations and do the work, make it happen. You have to, this is our responsibility as humans if there are is this is life and death you know there's people being shot this is this is real you can't turn a blind eye you can't not think about it we all have something to do if you are a leader or have any power i can't think of anything else you should be using your power for i just can't and we hope this has given you some tangible ideas to use your power for good but as sam just mentioned Climate change is another critical issue for the future we can't ignore. So with that, chapter two. I'm thrilled to dive into our next chapter and the next vital topic with my colleague and coworker, Avi. If you've ever heard Avi speak, you'll appreciate his passion on both of these topics. Hi, I'm Avi Rajagopal, Editor-in-Chief of Metropolis Magazine. Last year, Around July, the New York Times did this amazing article in which they reported that African-Americans are 75% more likely to live near a factory that produces hazardous waste. So the questions around equity that Sam brought up in that you just heard really link to questions of climate and of environment and of pollution uh, and of really safeguarding the resources that we have on this planet. We can't talk about one without talking about the other. And you know what's made in those factories? A lot of that stuff that's made in those factories ends up in the projects that you design, right? The building industry, the industry that you're a part of, that we all are a part of, emits 40% of the world's greenhouse gases. That means 40% of the world's carbon dioxide, methane, all of those gases that are going up in the atmosphere and are warming our planet. So we have a direct impact through the work we do on the climate crisis that we're in a part of, the global warming that we're feeling through the crazy temperatures in Seattle this year, the wildfires on the West Coast, the storms on the East Coast, but also on equity on fairness and justice in the world through the impact that we have on communities of color. To all the interior designers, architects, and product manufacturers listening, Avi has an important metric for you. All the tenant improvement projects and style refreshes have more of an environmental impact than you may think. Metropolis has been tracking the impact that architects and designers can have on sustainability, on climate change, on climate justice for many, many years now. 
But in the past year, we also became aware of another really amazing piece of information. So especially to all you interior designers out there and any of you who are involved with uh, interior design focused projects like tenant improvement projects. So you know all that stuff that you know puts carbon dioxide in the air when it's being made and then the factories that make it are putting out all these pollutants that affect communities of color. All that stuff comes into your project and then it sticks around for about five years and then the client says, oh, you know what? We have a new work strategy and we need to refresh the space. Or the hospital facility managers or the operations folks say, hey, you know what? It's been 10 years. It's time to replace all the surfaces and all the high touch areas and all the furniture. So eventually interiors go through this churn. As styles change, as needs change, as things wear out, we have to update interiors, which means that not only is the stuff that you're designing with responsible for all those emissions and all that pollution and that health effect, it happens every five years. So what we've found actually is, you know that 40% number that I said, that building industry is responsible for 40% of all the greenhouse gases that go into the air? Out of that 40%, one fourth, that is 10% of all global carbon emissions are influenced by interior designers. There's some great math around this. If you want to dig deeper into it, head to metropolismag.com. If you search for interior designers and climate change, you should find it pretty easily. I want to reiterate those stats. The building industry is responsible for 40% of all greenhouse gases and 10% of all global carbon emissions. That means you have a lot of power and you can choose how to use it. So what do we do about it? That's the big question that we're trying to grapple with at Metropolis. And it's something that we don't have a lot of resources around. We haven't made a lot of progress yet, but we have to pretty quickly. Because another thing's been happening in 2020 that's really important for you to understand is that a vast majority of the world's big corporations, the big multinational corporations, think Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Apple, think of you know consultancies like Accenture, think of real estate firms. All those giant companies have made commitments to reduce their impact on climate change. And they're focused on becoming carbon neutral, which means that they're hoping that they will have no negative impact on the environment by the year 2020. So that's a pretty big change that's happening in industry. Eventually, they're going to start asking about, well, if we're doing our offices, if we're building this new headquarters, if we are changing out the, the healthcare facilities, if we're going to redo the hotels we own, what is the carbon emissions of that? We have to prepare for that in our industry because we're responsible for a tenth of the world's carbon emissions. Whether you want to do it because your clients are going to ask you, whether you want to do it because you know that it's needed for the planet, whether you want to do it because you know of the impact you're going to have on communities of color and other disenfranchised communities, there's many reasons for interior designers and architects to address the carbon emissions of their work. In case you haven't heard, Metropolis is giving you a platform to do that with their own version of a hackathon. The result of this hackathon will produce a toolkit of ideas and standards for carbon-neutral interiors. Here's Avi with more information about the Metropolis Hackathon. A fantastic group of people. We have about 14 architecture and interior design firms. We have seven partners from manufacturing. We have corporate real estate. We have end users, the real estate teams from Facebook, Ford, and LinkedIn, as well as 
you know, industry associations and organizations, including ASID, BIFMA, which is the Furniture Manufacturers Association, all of those folks have been gathering together in sessions that Metropolis has been organizing over the last three months. And we've been trying to put together what are those strategies, what are those tools that you in the interior design industry can use to address your impact on climate change. Let's hear some ideas from Avi. But don't worry, we'll tell you when and where you can get the full toolkit. But here's three tangible takeaways for you to chew on for now. Number one, have meetings with the whole project team earlier. Through the process of bringing all these people together, we've learned some pretty amazing things. There's some really common sense things that designers can do now to start addressing their, their impact on the environment. The first thing is to start having meetings with the overall project team early, which means talk to general contractors, talk to your major manufacturers, the manufacturers that you know are going to be implicated in the big product categories. If designers start having conversations with them early in the process and then start bringing up sustainability early in the process, it makes it a lot easier for everyone along the way to really do the right thing in the project. Very often the the issue that we found people have is that at some later stage, they're like, oh my God, we decided on this path for flooring, but it turns out it has this crazy impact. Maybe we should look for another option. And then by then, you know, you've already spent so much time and effort and money. Number two, focus on the EPD or Environmental Product Declaration. The second thing is to ask manufacturers for what is called an EPD, which is an environmental product declaration, or to encourage manufacturers to go out and and get those in order for you to really understand what is the global warming potential, GWP, of the products that you're specifying. It's a really simple metric to ask manufacturers for and just keeping a record of it, even if you don't do anything about it, keeping a record of it is important. And I'll tell you why, because that's the third thing we learned is that once you have those numbers for every product that you're using, think about it, simple math. You can just multiply it by the volume of product you're planning to use and understand roughly what the carbon footprint of your project is. So, you know, without getting too deep into like carbon science and like calculators and all of that, the Carbon Leadership Forum actually recommends this really simple tool. It's really just an Excel sheet. You enter the volume of the product in one column, the GWP number in the other column, and it gives you what the carbon footprint is. And the thing is, you can do this for past projects. So you can do it. You don't need to do it when you're under pressure for a current project. You can do it for past projects and learn from that. So there's some really easy ways for designers to start addressing the carbon footprint of their projects. Number three, consider reuse. There's many other strategies that the group that we've brought together suggested, you know, including looking for things that you can reuse. So before you, as if you're talking to a client about a tenant room project, ask them if they have an inventory of all the products that are already in the space. Most likely they have a list or you could drop a very simple list just through through a project tour and then see how much of that stuff you can reuse because every single thing that you don't reuse is going to end up either in the landfill where, you know, again, it's going to leach into the soil. It's going to affect those, those uh, people who live near those areas. It's going to stay there for thousands of years and you know, degrade our environment or it's going to be recycled 
recycled with very high energy costs. So reusing is really the best thing to do. So these four things, A, talk to your project teams early about sustainability, B, ask for EPDs, three, start to look at the carbon impact of your projects, and Four, if you are not ready to do any of those, start with a tour of a project that you're working to redesign or you're working to improve or refresh and look at the assets, the products that are already there and think about creative ways that you can reuse them. Just even doing that last item can make a huge impact in terms of the carbon emissions that interior designers are involved in and the effect that we have on climate change and global warming. So that's a really important step that, that anyone can take. Want more? Here's Avi with how you can get the complete toolkit. Our hope with this process is to create a climate toolkit for interior design. And, you know, we're hoping that it's going to be one of the first of its kind, really a comprehensive collection of strategies around the things that interior designers can do to address their impact on the environment. That toolkit will be available for everyone to use and everyone to look at at the end of August, August 31st. And we hope that all of you will be able to apply it in your work. We're, we're trying to, you know, offer some really quick and easy suggestions as well as some deeper strategies. So no matter where you are on the journey, you'll be able to make use of that toolkit. And I will say, you know, that part of it is really important to me personally. The fact that no matter who you are, no matter why you want to make a difference through your work, that you should be able to participate in this effort to address climate change. We ended chapter one in this episode with some comments from Sam about division in our country. Avi sees it too, but has a very optimistic take about how a focus on climate change can actually help bring us all together for a common cause. And as Sam focused on the phrase, use your power for good, perhaps Avi gives us another way we can do so. I learned about the history of the sustainability movement here in the United States. In the 1980s, in the 1970s, pollution, environment, these were bipartisan issues. These were things that everybody cared about because they understood that it's part of making the world safe for the next generation. And even today, you find that depending on their political spectrum, somebody might have an objection to the word climate change, but they understand protecting nature, right? Or they understand keeping people healthy as a goal for design. No matter what your motivation, we hope that through our work at Metropolis and through this toolkit that you, you're able to find an entryway into making a difference with your work. All of us want some kind of purpose with our work and what greater purpose can be there than to safeguard our planet, safeguard the future of humanity on this planet. And yes, interior design, yes, through those selections of tile and, and carpet and, and furniture and lighting through, you know, choosing color and laying out furniture, doing all the things that we do as interior designers, creating access to daylight and outdoors and all of that stuff. That stuff, day in and day out, might you might think you're not making a bigger impact in people's lives beyond the people who enter your space. But by thinking about carbon emissions, thinking about climate change, thinking about equity, you really can have an impact way, way larger than the even touching the lives of people who might enter the workplace or the hospital or the restaurant that you that you help create and to me that's such an amazing idea that little by little all of us can do our bit towards 
really reversing this giant challenge that we have in front of us as humanity and i think that is that's the beauty of of understanding carbon emissions of understanding equity and understanding what we can do hopefully you've been inspired by avi's passion and this toolkit which will allow you to take the first step or dive deeper than you already have before but here's his second hope for the world and for the ecosystem that surrounds design the other hope that we have is that the world at large recognizes that interior design and architecture are not trivial things we don't just create beauty we don't just make spaces we don't just create function we we have this giant impact both at the level of individual human beings helping them feel comfortable and healthy and safe but also at the level of climate change and climate crisis at the level of equity and the health of communities all of those things are impacted by the decisions that designers make and that others in the design industry including those in product manufacturing make in order to drive this industry forward if you want more from metropolis more on these topics you're in luck Avi is now joining me as a podcaster, and we're thrilled to help announce the new Metropolis podcast, Deep Green. Metropolis is launching its very own podcast. It's going to be called Deep Green because the idea is that it'll allow you to dive just a little deeper into the sustainability movement, but also that it understands green in a deep way, understanding that it's about health, it's about equity. It's not just about energy efficiency or recycling or carbon emissions. So join us for the first episode of Deep Green, available wherever you listen to podcasts on July 27th. Our first episode is actually going to be about the Olympics because of course the Olympics are going on in Tokyo right now. There's a question about impact of giant sporting events on the planet and on and on health. As we bring season two to an official close, but spoiler alert, watch out for some bonus episodes between now and season three. I want to sincerely thank our sponsors one last time, Manning to Commercial and Keelhauer. We purposefully picked these sponsors this season because they represent companies that are bringing new techniques and thinking from outside of our industry and applying it in new and exciting ways. If you want more from ThinkLab, here are three ways you can stay engaged, even between seasons. Number one, join us every week on Clubhouse in our club, Design Plus Data with ThinkLab. We meet every Friday from 9 to 10 Eastern Standard Time. Like this podcast, we bring you compelling topics and experts from within this industry and beyond. And better yet, you can actually join that conversation. And we hope you do. Number two, we invite you to follow us on social. We'll be taking a lot of our own advice from this season of the Hackathon and the podcast and giving you more bite-sized ways to keep you up to date as we research the world of design. So pick your platform. Find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and as I mentioned, Clubhouse. And lastly, if you want ThinkLab Insights delivered directly to your inbox, head over to our website, thinklab.design, and sign up to be on our mailing list. We hope you've enjoyed season two of Design Nerds Anonymous. There's more to come as we roll into preparation for season three as our current hackathon unfolds. In the meantime, we'll be busy researching and ideating around the future of product specification in this increasingly hybrid era. So stay tuned, stay with us, and follow us so you can be the first to share in our discoveries. Special thanks in this episode and this whole season to Hannah Vitti, our audio intern from last season, now turned producer for all Sandow Sister Company podcasts, including The Mike from NYC by Design and Deep Green from Metropolis. 
And thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for the music.